You're listening to You Play A What, a podcast by a musician for musicians. My name is Vincent and I play the euphonium. Join me as I sit down with successful musicians to talk about their specialization, inspirations, and career developments. Hello everyone. Thank you for tuning in to lucky episode 13 of You Play A What. My guest today is a longtime friend and has appeared in a previous episode of the podcast. He has a fantastic collection of printed t-shirts that would either bring a smile to your face or leave you frowning with disgust, depending on your sense of humour, of course. On this episode, I spoke to Don about some of the work he took up and how it has challenged him. More importantly, how his time in the Netherlands influenced the way he thought about music and his career. Listen in to find out where he is on my top trombonist list now. And enough from me. Please enjoy this episode of You Play A What with Don. My guest today is the first returning guest to the show. Since the last time he came on the podcast, he had very slowly and steadily climbed up from number 27 to the current number 24 of my most favourite trombone list. Topping the kid living on the 12th floor and has yet to find his fifth position. Since his return to Singapore in 2019, we have been working very closely and I think I have seen him more in the last one year as compared to the rest of the years we've known each other. Welcome to the show, Don. How are you doing today? Hi, Vincent. Thank you so much for having me back again. No problem at all. Yeah, absolute privilege to have you now talking by yourself and share a little bit more about uh, your career and your life. But before we get into all that kind of serious stuff, I have two very important questions for you. Uh, let's start with the more important one, which is uh, what are your thoughts now that you have climbed up three positions in my top trombone players list? Well, honestly, I'm very humbled and very flattered because I'm very sure just within Singapore alone, there's more than 24 trombone players. So <laughs> thank you. Uh, yeah, a slight increase in the number as compared to euphonium players, right? So I just I just want to ask, did I climb the position because you haven't heard me play in the last uh, three, four months? To be honest, maybe. But I think it has to do with, you know, like I said, the kid that's living on the 12th floor, right? They just can't seem to find a D flat to save his life. He was showing so much promise. He was sounding, for what I thought, pretty good. Yeah, it's just a little bit unfortunate how things turn out. But I also want to tell you that my block only goes up to the 10th floor. So actually, yeah, there's a lot of maybe imaginary characters within that bracket of 26 trombone players that is ahead of you. But cool. cool. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, honestly, um, I'm, I'm having trouble finding fifth position myself. So, uh, yeah. Tell me about it. If I pick up the trombone, you write a G flat. That's it. I put the instrument down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, now to the next question. Um, slightly less importance. I believe congratulations are in order and wedding bells are ringing. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I had to hold it back when we were having dinner two nights ago. I wanted to congratulate you in person, but I don't want to have this same conversation with you, right? So, ah, uh, okay. yeah. But I mean, so I like- you, you thought you, you, you'd immortalize it on, uh, on the internet? Of course, of course. It goes without saying, right? I mean, I know uh, you and Placida like to keep things private. So I'm sure you will enjoy this uh, advertisement of your engagement on my podcast, right? Yes, yes. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I just like to extend my heartfelt and sincere uh, congratulations to Placida and yourself on your engagement. Thank you. It's been a long time coming. Super happy for the both of you. And uh, I believe this is your first proper relationship. Yes, yes. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I think you've, you've done pretty all right for yourself, I think. Of course, that's not what I said in the past, but, you know, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll let that slide. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. So really exciting stuff uh, that's happening in your life. I'm sure there'll be a lot of planning to do for this big event in your life. So now you've been back to Singapore for about a year since you, since you moved back from the Netherlands. How has things been for you? And looking back to the past year, what were some of the highlights from the aspect of your work? Yeah, I mean, it's actually been about a year and about two months maybe mm. since I've been back. Been back uh, in June of last year. So, I mean, I'm really glad to be back. I mean, there are so many things to be excited about. I think I have done, like, especially with our, our work at Cole, mm. we have just come a long way, right, from the creation of this mixed instrumental group with no <laughs> repertoire to play. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Also with teaching, I mean, managed to really be able to occupy myself with uh, a decent amount of teaching. Mm. And a mixture of different different type of groups as well, which is what I, I really enjoy, right? Really to challenge myself yeah. teaching both uh, mature students as well as uh, really young and beginning students. I think, yeah, the skill set that is required for different age groups, especially in a group setting, and primarily not just um, students that play the instrument that you have expertise in definitely requires uh, a completely different type of uh, approach and uh, skill set, yeah? Yeah. Of course, now there's no um, traveling at all. So let's talk about over the past years, the sort of travels that you've been on. I think one that comes to my mind is your trip to India. Could you just uh, share with us how was that experience going to India and was it what you expected? Oh yes, uh, that was that's quite a, a fond memory actually. Uh, so I was actually asked to be part of this new group called the South Asia Symphony Orchestra, and that mm. the project that was involved in was it was conducted by local conductor Elvin Seville. Mm. Yeah, and so he got a group of us to to play for the orchestra, and a contingent of us from Singapore to kind of represent yeah. in this orchestra, right? So uh, it we did this tour in, uh, when was it? I think October last year. Mm. Time flies, huh? Yeah, I haven't realized how, how 
long ago it was. I in my mind was just like a, a couple of months ago, or maybe like two three mm. months ago. But yeah, it means almost a year yeah. already. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was really interesting experience. Uh, and the orchestra was made up of really many different musicians from all over the world. I mean, mostly with the South Asian uh ethnicity. Yeah. yeah. What other nationalities are there? There were a group of boys from uh, Afghanistan. I remember my my brass mates. That was a trombonist and a trumpeter from uh, Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a, a, yeah. a bunch of us from Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, represented the Southeast mm. Asian in this South Asia context. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I think uh this this uh, this project is really trying to mimic this West Eastern Divan Orchestra kind of based in Spain that, that's consisting of musicians from like the Middle East area. I right? see. And it's, it's, okay. uh, it's founded by Baron Boy, Daniel Baron Boy. Mm-hmm. Basically, I mean, it's just trying to, to, to show that, you know, if all these musicians can get to get along fine making music together, there's no reason there should, there should be conflict. Yeah. Yeah. Basically promoting peace within that region. Hmm. Particularly with India and Pakistan, isn't it? Where things can get a little bit rough and uh, around the, the borders, I yeah. guess. I remember, I think one of the planned projects was supposed to be for this concert uh, on one of the Indian cities, the border of Pakistan and India. Mm. Yeah, but I think it didn't happen because of the COVID situation and everything. And it is sort of yeah, almost history-defining and quite monumental, isn't it? If the... Pr- concert is to take place at uh, at some point in the future. So now let's talk a little bit about your current work that is on your plate at the moment. So uh, you mentioned, of course, now you are doing a, quite a wide range of teaching. What sort of uh, scope uh, are on your plate right now? So with, uh, with, with regards to teaching, I mean, I've, t- I've taken up uh, appointments to, to teach at various levels. Yeah. So like mm-hmm. I've been teaching from primary school level all the way to JC and even university level. So yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean the most interesting one that I didn't think I would think was the assistant band director, which basically um, taking care of the junior band, the sec ones. And that mm-hmm. means um, like all the sec ones, right? Including like woodwinds and brass and percussion. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, it's it was that's that's quite that's quite a hectic like appointment for me to take on, especially with my knowledge of the woodwind and percussion instruments. So mm. there's a a huge ton of learning and preparing actually for 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 that. Yeah, definitely, I can imagine. Yeah, I, and I think uh, we we've had this conversation before, right? Regarding taking up appointments as uh, assistant band directors and things like that, and uh, you know my stand on this, I'm am sort of <laughs> really put off and almost in, uh, intimidated by the thought that I have to learn all this range of instruments that seems to uh, engage more than three fingers on the right hand. So yeah, that that sort of like put me off. But I'm really glad that you you are brave enough to take this step forward. Um, to, to just sort of broaden your knowledge and I'm sure it's going to come good in due time, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, I am I'm played a trombone so like I never really have to use my finger so it's like way more 
humbling for me to actually take on all these other instruments. <laughs> Not just three fingers. I mean, even playing the euphonium would be a monumental step for me. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, it's easy. It's easy. And mo- I mean, most trombonists would always say yeah, that. Yeah, we always it? say that. But then, I mean, recently I have tried. I have tried to, to um, because of my, my uh, appointment as a, a brass teacher so sometimes i have to take tuba euphonium students and trumpet students so i have to actually like show the fingerings and you know demonstrate myself and it's really humbling because yeah. i realized like my fingers don't really work <laughs> yeah i mean definitely there are i would say more advantages on the euphonium as compared to the trombone because the the trombone you know the the slide is so kind of micro right you you can hit literally any spot whereby uh, the the a valve instrument really sort of contains that sort of um, distance and the tubing for you, but yeah, of course the the other side of things is the coordination and uh, the different sort of technique and nuances in the instrument. I'm sure it's you know it, it just takes a, a little bit of practice. You know, I give you um, five years, you'll be there. Yeah, well, sure. but the the thing is, uh, <laughs> I think the age doesn't does do do me that justice because like yeah. Yeah, you know, as you get older, motor skills become yeah. worse. Yeah, but hey, don't worry. It's not like you're, you know, you're gonna open up a lot more opportunities if you learn the. Hey, I mean, I mean that so. option is always there, right? <laughs> <laughs> come on, come on, please, please, don't compete with me anymore. Cool. So, I mean, uh, because you are a returning guest, I'm not um, going to ask you these questions like what do you play and where do we first meet. And we're not even going to go into your detailed music, uh, musical journey and developments because all this has been said already. And if you're interested to find out all these things about Dawn, you can just go back to episode one of the podcast. And at some point in the podcast, uh, he speaks very, very um, much in detail of his musical journey and uh, developments over his education. So... What I'm going to do uh, is for us to go straight into the time when you entered uh, higher music education. Okay, so we're going to start off where uh, at NUS, at OIST Conservatory, or the Yong Sudo Conservatory, whereby you started really studying trombone seriously. And uh, one thing that I've known about you for a really, really long time is that you are always very dedicated to your practice. And I believe that you were one of the few people that would be at the conservatory early in the morning and just start your routine and do your warm-ups and all that kind of stuff. So what gave you this kind of motivation to be doing that? Because I would say when you were practicing, there were not a lot of students probably uh, appearing at the conservatory, right? Or maybe on week one of a new term, people would appear and then slowly <laughs> during the semester, people will all start to enter uh, or come and start their practice a little bit later in the day. Yeah, definitely. That that was definitely the 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 common common trend, right? Like week one yeah. after semester break or even like a short term break, the week one is always the, mm. the, the week with everyone like booking early morning uh, uh, doing the early right, morning routine, right. booking all the early morning rooms in the in in, yeah. in the school. 
Yeah. Mm. It's like a new new term resolution kind of thing, right? Like I'm re- renewed, I'm rejuvenated, I'm gonna make full use of my time in the in a uh, in a college or the university. But of course, um, many times people just run out of steam, right? Yeah, I mean, actually, yeah, I mean, I am flattered that you actually think that I am very dedicated, because uh, I mean, I think, I think uh, when I started my formal music training in YST, um, I was especially during my first couple of years, it felt like I was just trying to catch up to my peers. And uh, although mm. I, I, I I did try, like, try to, to, to really wake up early and, and to be there, like, I think I remember always uh, waking up and taking the 7.15, which is, I think, the first bus at the time from the... Mm. And I was staying in, on campus. It was the PGP hostel in NUS. And I would take, I would yeah. uh, always wake up like six forty five just to make that that seven fifteen bus. Mm. But honestly, when I arrived, always, almost every other day when I whenever I arrived, like maybe arrive at seven thirty in school to practice, um, there would always be two wind players that would I would always um, see, like already already they would already start that, started their practice right, and that's like uh, Bernice and Wenrong. And mm. yeah, I think I think they are just way more dedicated, and I think they uh, they they have the results to show show as well. Yeah, definitely. So, what was the was it mostly kind of just the the thought of like you you felt that you were a little bit behind um, some of your peers that you think that you should be you know putting in the extra work. Actually, I think for most, if not all, my my music, my trombone playing life, I, I've always felt that way. Especially, it, mm. it started, like, I mean, I, I shall not go too much into detail, but, like, even when, in my younger days, when I when I was in poly, just due to my, to to, to where I came from, you know, and uh, I always felt like I was behind. So, I always felt the need to put in extra effort so that I can kind of... Mm kind of just keep up with everyone else and not pull pull down everyone, right? So is that kind of like almost um, the, the sort of integrity you had in yourself to be, to, to put the best foot forward and to contribute in the best way yeah. in like ensembles and, and whatever sort of projects you're involved in? Yeah, I mean, definitely do, that's like during like the, the less serious days that's with like poly band and stuff. But I think uh, afterwards, like after later on in my formal music studies um, in YST, I think uh, it was also the, the kind of attitude that my, one of my first teachers in the school really instilled me with. He was always, he was uh, comparing the, the, the career or the occupation of uh, of being a, a professional trombonist to to being an Olympic athlete, you know, like I mm. to to win a, a job, right? To win an orchestra job, it's like winning the the gold medal, you know, like you have to put in the amount of uh, work and effort if you really want to succeed. And I think yeah. that really stuck with me. And also, uh, as uh, one of my uh, one of my teachers also mentioned like. If you don't, uh, if you don't work, you don't work hard now. You won't eat later. Yeah, and I, yeah. I guess this kind of sentiments really just like stuck stuck with me. Mm, mm, okay, okay. And now, did you feel the 
amount of hours and the time that you spent during practice, was it translating into your playing and in performance? Because this is often a very, it's a tricky question, isn't it? And it's something that, it has a lot of, I, I guess, mystery around this sort of like, sometimes you put in a lot of time that also doesn't mean that it comes out and or comes through, say, during a lesson or during a, a performance. So how was that like for you? Yeah, I mean, definitely there were times, there were like specific periods of, of, of times that but I could really feel like... Uh, like the work I was putting in was really helping me. But then there were also times mm. where where I was practicing a lot and then I felt like it wasn't going anywhere. If anything, I felt like it was going downhill. Mm. So it's always been like a series of ups and downs. So in fact, yeah. I think, uh, and this was also uh, from my teacher. He, he said that sometimes, you know, uh, I move two steps forward mm. and one step back. And so it's like, really this mm-hmm. like kind of like seesaw up and down really but I mean in the end I think the overall trajectory is there will be improvement and also yeah. actually I don't I think I like, could really see the, the translation between the work and, and the results only towards the end of my my studies in Netherlands so in, mm. in the beginning was a lot of frustration and even thinking if I should actually continue this continue down this path or to do something yeah. else, you know. Uh, in your earlier years, when you were uh, in the conservatory in Singapore, your approach, because it's so kind of systematic, right? You you turn up almost uh, the same time every day, you practice. I, I suppose you more or less do the same kind of warm-up and routine exercises. Uh, did, did the conditioning of the day uh, model the way you practice or was it just like, I have to do all these things irregardless. So I've got to plow through it even though, say, on some days, my flexibility is working really well, but I still spend a lot of time on it. But on some days, say, for example, the, the low register is less responsive and I also spend the same time on it every day. Or did you sort of like had this idea of catering to how you felt on that day? I mean, of course, I I mean, it really depends. I think sometimes when it was, I, I really felt like discouraged at a certain, in, in a certain aspect, I would really try to avoid playing any any further, right? But I think mm. in general, most of the time, I just really try to stick with um, my routine because, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a, a little bit shallow, but I mean, basically, it was because my teacher said that if you do this uh, consistently, you know, you will you will improve, and to mm. me that was basically the kind of like mantra that I had. You know, so I was just really trying to to keep to it as much as possible. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think this for me uh, during my earlier years as well, I didn't care about my conditioning for the day. You know, for me it it was like I had to do or go through a series of exercises, and irregardless of what, I just had to do them. Yeah. Right. So, um, even though it's in in particular, like for for example, uh, a day where certain aspects of the playing is working, instead of now jumping a few exercises 
and go to the more advanced one and move on to the next thing. I would still continue to go step by step. Step one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And I think many times uh, it reached a point whereby I think I was already tired, but I couldn't tell. And, and it could be like physically, I just wanted to block that, that idea of being tired out. And then like in terms of the product, obviously things will start to get a little bit less centered and fuzzy. And I, maybe I, I most probably turned a, a kind of deaf ear to it and just kind of plow through everything. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I definitely uh, agree with those sentiments, you know, like, uh, and I definitely can identify with it because I think it, as a brass player, sometimes we, it's, I don't know if it's it's the way we are taught, but mm. like that's there's so much like muscle involved, right? Like there's a lot of uh, kind of like strength, yeah, talk, right? Yeah, building yeah. up your chops, you know, and then having yeah increasing your air capacity and just like blowing air through yeah. through this instrument like just put put just keep pushing air through this instrument if anything doesn't work yeah. it means more air right and mm, yeah definitely and and i think i think what would have helped me more back then was really to kind of learn how to use my ears because like you, you mentioned you mm. know like you 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 kind of you're, you're playing dulls and you just uh turn turn a blind uh, a deaf ear to it right and then yeah. yeah, 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 and that I think that itself is the most dangerous thing, right? Yeah, at the end of the day, we are playing a music instrument, so and we are not like competing for the for like the hundred meter sprint, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely, it's not a a weightlifting, or or some some kind of uh competition like that. This aspect of yeah, not listening and disengaging in that sense is yeah makes the entire process of practicing a lot less efficient. I think. Yeah, definitely. Mm, yeah. And we move on now. So you finish your four years at the conservatory. After that, you moved to the Netherlands. You were uh, in Rotterdam for two years and then you did one more year in uh, The Hague. At the point where you finished and you were thinking of your next steps, what, what do you think would have happened if you didn't go to the Netherlands or you didn't embark on like a, a master's course? I mean, I, I don't really know what would happen if I... I mean, I was really quite set on doing my master's overseas. So, mm. I mean, I didn't... Honestly, I did not try many schools, right? In the end, I actually really only auditioned for four. So, I remember I auditioned okay. for Amsterdam. I auditioned for Rotterdam. And then I auditioned for Rostock in Germany. And then also for mm. Hanover. I see. Of course. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. and actually, uh, yeah, I mean, I had a lot of, uh, I did not have a lot of success with the auditions, actually. So, I, yeah, I mean, I outrightly failed the Rostock and the the Amsterdam one. And I remember Hanover, mm. I remember that the, the, the teacher was, was basically telling me that, uh, yeah, I have to see if there's space, you know, like, like I passed the audition, but then there might not be space. I think in the end there were only like two spots, but then there were like thirteen people. No, there yeah. were like thirteen people who passed the master's audition, right? But then, then they didn't. They, there was also like I think six from the bachelor's audition, and they were really obviously going to take the the two bachelors already. So, yeah. 
Uh, so I actually, see, I, see. Uh, I okay. think uh, Rotterdam was the only really my the only school that I was successful in getting. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now let's talk about your your time in Netherlands, and of course you shared already a little bit of your own uh, personal experiences and your your feelings towards your perhaps first year of studies in uh, Rotterdam. Now. I want to talk about now the more, uh, the brighter and the happier things, right? So, uh, what are some of the highlights during your stay in the Netherlands? Now, both in terms of music and in terms of your own uh, personal growth. Well, I mean, uh, it was it was really, really, really exciting time for me in Netherlands, even though, uh, you know, being far away from family and spending a lot of money being overseas, but... I think one of the main, I mean, of course, the main point of getting to the Netherlands was to kind of be immersed with this and to be studying with uh, this, with the New Trombone Collective, right? And I remember mm. because this this was this was a group that was actually quite monumental in my development. I mean, I don't know if they were the only ones, but basically they were the first kind of trombone group in which they released a CD and I listened to it. And also at that time when I listened to their their CDs, I was also playing with this local, uh, local trombone ensembles like that, and mm. that was really yeah. when it was really like, um, hanging out with the uh, the other trombonists in the ensemble who were really kind of encouraging me to pursue music. And you know, with yeah. this, with with the trombone ensemble kind of emulating this uh, new trombone collective, they were like kind of on a ped- pedestal for me, right? For the the the, the collective, yeah. And and you can you can almost say that there is uh, that was the beginning of like this Netherlands uh, trombone school of playing, isn't it? Which w- would you say that, or am I like wrong to say that there's a Netherlands school of playing? I now? mean, to be honest, I think it has already. I think this uh, Dutch Dutch school of uh, of of playing, I think it's really existed like even longer than that. So actually, yeah. uh, from what I know, actually, like the Rotterdam trombone class has always been uh, quite successful in terms of churning out great trombone players who have who usually win orchestra jobs in Europe even mm. before. Yeah, obviously, like you said, you've got so much uh, sort of respect with the the New Trombone Collective and the work that they have been doing. Now, what were some of the major lessons that you got out uh, throughout your time in the Netherlands? Well, I mean, I think one of them was the this weekly trombone trombone ensemble uh, sessions. That uh, it was it was a really big thing, right? So playing play, doing trombone ensembles was a huge thing. I mean, it was even like a a chamber, even give like chamber music credits. Like it was like a kind of like a set like chamber music ensemble in 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 the school. And mm. I mean, with the it was just something like you know playing with such a, a huge trombone class. It was really, really exciting because I mean throughout the years I I managed to to play with with the with the different classes and yeah, uh different different uh kind of trombone ensembles there like the the huge uh like the huge the, the huge kind of trombone repertoire, you know like uh mm. like Derek Baudrillard's Osteoblast. And uh, yeah. Schneider's Olympia, 
like this were really like mm-hmm. um really huge like trombone uh trombone ensemble trombone choir works trombone choir repertoire that I always dream of playing. So I really I really mm-hmm. managed to to fulfill that over there. Yeah. Yeah, and also with 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 the collective and being in the in the class in 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 Holland. Uh, I was also very, very privileged and fortunate to be part of two of their slide factory festivals. Yeah, that that was that was mm. that was monumental yeah. for 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 my development. I remember uh, actually when mm. I started my my first year masters, my teacher was telling me uh, of what he kind of expected in my master's recitals so I had to do one at the end of my first year and one yeah. at the end of my second year to graduate and he was asking me what mm. kind of plans I had and I just told him I just want to play like one from like a different repertoire like one from the baroque era one from the romantic era one from the classical era one from the, the yeah. contemporary era right and then just like kind of covering all my bases mm. right and then, um, yeah. Then he was like, "Okay, so uh, how are you gonna make uh make? How are you gonna engage the audience, right?" And then I was uh, I was just telling him, you know, I I just want to play play them well, you know. If I play them well, if I play them really really good, mm-hmm. then the audience will be really happy, right? They'll be really intrigued, really uh involved yeah. in my performance. Yeah, and then he was like, "No, no, no, yes. no, no! no. It, it has to be good. Like your playing has to be good. That's 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 uh that's a given, right? But what are the other kind of? Mm. You, he said what I what what he really wanted was for me to really think about the different aspects of um creating a a program. And he was giving me examples of what his previous master's graduate has has been doing. And I was kind of like, yeah. and those like kind of little gimmicks, right? Like." Yeah, so I was like, yeah, I mean, mm, I, I kind of mm. understand, but I didn't really agree because, yeah, I mean, I felt yeah. like, you know, like, you know, if you play really well and then, like, yeah, if you're really musical and then that's that's all there is to it, right? Yeah, and almost like adding all these other things and or what you would deem as, like, fluff is like, uh, like a sellout in a way, isn't it? Yeah. At that point of time, and, at least. And yeah. actually, it was during the, the very first Slide Factory in my first year there uh, that I really got blown away because they I used to think Slide Factory was this trombone festival where there was just a lot of uh, where the critic invited I mean of course it was it was hosted by the collective which is really full of amazing trombonists that I I, I really respect but like I always mm. I always thought it was just you know another festival where there were just a lot of very, very good trombone players, right? So like the collective would would invite guests from other places. Like I think in my first, the very first yeah. Light Factory, they invited um, Lindbergh, Christian Lindbergh, uh, uh, mm-hmm. George Curran, mm. Randy Horse. Yeah, yeah, I mean it was just full of this this these amazing players and. Yeah and uh yeah and even Mike Mike Svoda, right for like the contemporary music really gave me a different different mm-hmm. um perspective to contemporary music and yeah so like in in the yeah. in in the slide factory performances right I mean it was a festival so there were like master classes and everything 
and I mean I, I already learned so mm. much and the thing is uh, the deal the deal with um, studying in, in Holland right if you're in one of the three conservatories in Amsterdam Rotterdam or The Hague so this this uh, guests these trombone guests would fly in like maybe a week before the the festival and they would like come and do like master classes for like three days three consecutive days in one of the schools Mm, okay and then yeah and then but this 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 will be like full day events but this this is like kind of like a closed event for the just for the students yeah yeah so it was it was uh yeah i mean so basically all of us were studying there we we all had let's we all had chances to you know like have lessons have master classes with with this this all these great players mm. that were coming in and i and in in payment right in payment for our having all these lessons and stuff we we kind of work at the festival. Yeah. Like, so as ushers, as yeah. stagehands. Yeah, chaperones and all this. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think that's a, it's a great deal, really. And and what is nice is that the the teachers have organized something specifically for all the students. So you get that opportunity to play in a masterclass or listen to a masterclass which you could have missed because you were working at the festival, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And in fact, I think we got way more because we 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 had very specific, dedicated spots to to really perform mm. for each of this this uh these guests. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it was and not to mention like it was the whole the whole day. There were like three or four teachers in the in the building, and then you could like go to any one of them at any point of time. Basically, I think. We usually start off with like a warm up at like nine a.m. Mm. and then like ten a.m. will be the first masterclass. It will go all the way to like five p.m. So it was like seven hours of like back to back. Of course, there was like a lunch break and everything. Yeah, but you know, yeah, nice. lunch break was also just mingling with the rest of the the other trombone classes and getting to know no, to know more people. Mm. Yeah, it was it was a really great, great experience. Nice. Yeah, that, that's yeah. great. So the the the. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of digressed away from from the what what I kind of got from the slide factory, right? Mm. Was the the collective the the way they kind of arranged their performances was just so amazing. I remember the the first slide factory that I was in. Um, I think that was in yeah twenty seventeen, and it was the big one. I mean, uh, they had it again last year in twenty nineteen, but that was like slide factory light, so it was like a smaller scale version. Mm. But in 2017, it was really quite amazing because they had like three big like recitals in a way that the collective was just like playing their own repertoire. And those concerts really opened my eyes, man. I mean, I remember one of them where where the audience were, were kind of waiting outside the concert venue. It, it, it happened in this like, um, I don't know, like kind of factory, like used to be a factory mm. kind of areas. Like and an abandoned just, kind of factory yeah. space. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So... So yeah, I mean, in the end, it becomes uh, converted to this event space, mm. and then so the audience were were all waiting outside the performance space, right? And then like when it was time for the performance to start, the doors still didn't open, right? And then like five minutes after that, um, we we started to hear like marching band music, and then it was okay. the collective and and friends. I think there were there was like a little bit of trumpets and like tubas playing along with percussion as well. And then they were just mm. marching towards the performance venue. And then that's when the the ushers, we opened the doors. And then like they were marching in. 
So it was kind of arranged in a way. Was it felt like it was like a kind of a maze. They were kind of leading the whole audience to throughout the maze, and then there was like this huge like dining table where they kind of had their performances on. Mm. Yeah, so they they were that was like their stage, right? They they kind of made this stage like it was like this huge like dining table. Okay, so it's those kind of like long, uh, Hogwarts style yeah, dining yeah, table, like those, like, kind yeah. of thing. Okay. Those you would find okay. in like 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 castles and and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I mean yeah, and and it was interesting. I mean, of course, there were a lot of other other things that that happened during this this concert, right? But I mean, I, I shall not go too deep into it. But basically, it this whole experience. I mean, they didn't even. Like no one, not even the ushers, we weren't even told to kind of explain to the audience like what's happening, right? They just kind of did mm. it, and then like when they entered the performance venue, like when we opened the doors, and they they just marched through it, and then like everyone just followed, right? Like mm. there was no questions about uh, what, yeah. what what's going to happen, and what we we just it, it just kind of followed, and then like it was very interesting. Everyone was really tickled. Everyone was really intrigued. Yeah, must have caught a lot of people by by surprise, right? Having a start of the concert that is like that, from out of the concert hall. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know about other people, but I mean, I I definitely was surprised. But I mean, I could imagine if if you're in a in in a in a music scene where things like this is common, then you'll probably be not as surprised. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I uh something like that also happened. Uh, for me, but this is a, a theater show that I attended in Singapore. So um, I, I forgot who was um, doing this production, but it was the same kind of idea. But of course, we are not engaged by musicians. We are engaged by the the actors that were like sort of playing playing games with us and trying to engage the audience even before we entered the performance venue or the black box. So suddenly, it's it's a it's a very interesting way of starting a, a concert and I'm, I'm sure they had good reasons for that isn't it like why they chose to do that and it's not just like oh we wanted to be different so let's just do something that is a little bit out of the box and uh, pass it off as an, a new idea yeah I mean definitely I mean it was basically full right uh, this this concert were, this, this concert was I mean all these concerts for Slide Factory was like usually like completely booked you know and then mm. like sometimes like even the the students the ushers and everything we don't even have like we didn't even have like seats right we had to like stand at the side stand at the back of the stage you know just to catch a glimpse of the the performances because of how full yeah. uh, their performances were and you have to remember that this is uh all trombone kind of ensemble right and mm. for them to be able to sell out you know to and, and it wasn't even it wasn't like you know there's this um stereotype where classical music is for the older audience right yeah and, but i mean the the audience in that that i was observing there were like young families right there were like a couple of kids there were there were there were a lot more younger audience than there there were older older audiences for example yeah mm. yeah mm, okay yeah, and, and this yeah. this experience, I mean, it was it was I mean, this was only one of the concerts. I mean, the other two concerts that I I remember in the very first Slide Factory also, also really really blew my mind. I mean, really changed my mind about this. Mm. 
what my teacher was talking about. And so I remember actually mm. one week after the slide factory, I had my lesson and then my teacher was asking me, how was it? And I actually, I, I, I remember I was telling him, uh, yes, I, I, now I kind of get, get what you mean mm. by, he has by, to engage yeah, your about, audience, engage, right? about this, this form of like audience engagement. Right. And mm. although I don't think I really kind of acted on that in my first recital. Right. So I think my first master recital, because it was only like a, like a month or two right after that, that uh, slide factory. So I really kind of planned it and I, I didn't actually, I was kind of digesting mm. actually, to be honest, I was kind of digesting yeah. what I, I experienced and I didn't really act on it. And actually also because of that, mm. uh, they did not give me a really high mark for my very first recital. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, but I mean that, that regardless, I think that really changed, changed my whole perspective mm. of course your teacher uh, used the word engage or engagement or engage the audience right how much do you think is down to musicians creating a connection with the audience uh, actually to be honest uh, I, he, he didn't really use the word engage I remember uh, he had I can't really remember exactly what he said but basically he wanted I mean he his English wasn't so good. I mean, it was, I could still understand him, of course, mm. but he was uh, mm. this basically describing this idea of how I can capture the audience uh, interest. So yeah. that's, that's mm. how I, I kind of came up with the word engagement. Yeah. I see, I see. So, okay. But yeah, okay. I mean, back to your question, I used to think it wasn't really part of the, it wasn't really part of the musician's job, right? To kind of create this, and I mean, I always think like, you know, that's like the, 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 the producers, right? The creative, the administrative people should, should think of these ways to engage because it's like marketing and stuff. Yeah, until mm. like, I, I really, I mean, I used to think like, you know, I'm a musician, I'm here to, to do my job, to play the trombone and that's it, like full stop, right? I play it well. Mm, and, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, so it's, it's really this, uh, this, this watching this this concerts that really really changed my whole perspective because uh this were all kind of planned by the the collective right it was their own creative mm. thought and yeah and it started to change my thinking yeah right right okay and now okay we move to the final year of your studies so obviously now you were back from the Netherlands after finishing your master's uh, course in Rotterdam. So this decision to do one more year, I think it worked out great for you. And I think you did some pretty interesting projects during that one year as well. So would you just share with us the kind of benefits that are the, the great things that happened uh, during this one year? I mean, I mean, of course, before I talk, I talk about that, that one year, the, the main reason why I did this this extra year, like I mentioned in the previous podcast, was was basically because like the first year was really the, my first year in my master, as a master's student was really to kind of acclimatize and to get used to the environment, right? Mm. But I also realized that it was also my intention to do like a further study. Basically, before I was just thinking, you know, after a bachelor's, it's a master's, you know, and, you know, you, you get to practice more, you get to study, study with all these great teachers, and then you get better, and then, yeah, that's when you win a job. 
right? Mm. But it was halfway through the master's and I realized like really felt that I wasn't really fully utilizing my studies, my program mm. as a master's student because yeah. I mean, all throughout my master's program, I think my teachers were kind of pushing me, you know, like, hey, you know, you're a master's student, you take the initiative to kind of plan your your career, right? And plan, kind of plan the, the way you want to build your career. And I was still quite mm. adamant at that time, you know, with winning an orchestra job. And because I, I just basically yeah. didn't see how there was another way where I could kind of perform and make a living, right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So in this, so that was what kind of made me want to do this, um, this additional year, right? Because I, I basically wanted to explore different ways of, of um, performing. And mm. that led me to audition for this uh, this postmasters program in the Hague, and yeah, mm. like in 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 that final year, I mean, I did I did a lot of things. I the the most notable one would probably be doing this trombone solo. Yeah. So the Dutch National Opera was doing this production of uh, Stockhausen's Auslicht, which is from Light, okay. and there was this uh trombone solo role. It was this um, movement. So basically, uh, just some backstory about this opera. Basically, uh, Stockhausen created an opera for every day of the week, right? From mm. Sunday to Saturday. Yeah. And I think uh, the, the so this Dutch uh, national opera, their production, they wanted to kind of mm. condense as much as they could into three, three very full days. Okay. Right. With con with the con uh with the compressing of the the whole opera, they they, they are bound to leave uh, some stuff up so out, out. So it wasn't the full run, right? And mm. I was involved in this um this segment where it was called the orchestra finalists, and basically it was okay. one of every orchestral instrument instrumentalist on stage, and we would stand up each take turns to stand up to to do a solo and the solo. So basically with Stockhausen with his uh, electronic music, right? So there was this this like tape going on all the time. And it was very interesting because I had to embrace, basically, I had to memorize a contemporary score, which to be honest, memorizing scores is something that hasn't been very difficult for me, right? It always comes to me very naturally with a lot of practice. Okay. It comes like, really easily. Right. But for this particular score, it was a lot of repetition of the same notes in the same kind of like motifs. And that really kind of, I couldn't really kind of memorize it. There were markings, there were tempo markings that were like really, really weird. Like something point mm. five. Ab abrupt changes? Yeah. Or? Like it would be like, so yeah. the, the, there will always be tempo changes, but then there will be like a different tempo marking, right? There'll be like um, something point five. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's very typical of him, isn't it? Yeah. How do you measure that point mm. five? So there were a lot of things. Like, there was, it was definitely like a very, informative score but there were a lot of things to memorize as well and the reason i had to memorize it was because none of us were allowed to play with the score right because of this whole production um and the, the even with our house stockhausen men for this this particular performance right was for like we would it wasn't just like a solo right we had to actually do like like different actions it was like a theatrical element to it mm. Like I remember, I had to learn how to spin around on stage, um, and I was at one point I was lying down on my back. Oh yeah, yeah. But I still had to churn out like high E's and F's, yeah. you know, 
uh, and was just that was like really kind of learning of a like learning, learning a a, a different way to play, mm. basically because I was like lying down on my back with my neck like, like completely blocked. Yeah. Because I had to like bend it up. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I can imagine. Yeah, because the 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 back of the trombone will also hit the floor, right? If you can't completely yeah, exactly. lie down as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, just being involved in that that really took up a lot of my time, and it was really very eventful. I mean, i i had I had lessons with, uh, I had actually had like movement lessons with like a dance dance coach, mm. right? And she was yeah was was it was really amazing. Like uh, I remember the first lesson, she just all she did was make make me walk around and sit down. Right, so I was like, "This is quite pointless. Like, what, what am I gonna learn from this?" But actually, I realized just with the act, with the intention of walking, mm. like with the action, right, that the intention behind the action of walking and sitting down, you could tell, like, you could give like different moods. Yeah, it's kind of like the the body language, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So that that really, really. Opened up my mind, right? Because I used to kind of separate my walking on stage as a performer. You know, I always had to exude this kind of confidence, right? When you walk on stage, yeah. Yeah, when you walk on stage, you they are always told by your teachers you have to be confident, yeah, right? Smile, have... uh, chest up, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, but then I realized, like you know, by doing that, so there is a different. So usually, like before you walk out on stage, there is that that moment when you start to walk out on stage and you're not really into that that mood, right? So walking towards you, your end point is already a different character. Mm. And then when you find, make it to the point and you face the audience, that is a different character because you're like, okay, I'm in front of the audience. I have to compose myself. Yeah. Right? Mm. And then, okay. And then you're like, it could be like any any kind of, any 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 way, right? That, that, that you walk like, you walk up confidently and then you turn and then you smile and then suddenly you're very cheerful mm. and then when you start playing your instrument right suddenly you you play like I don't know like like the second movement of David Concerto right mm. like it's suddenly very somber very sad funeral yeah funeral march and then it doesn't really translate mm. so um, I I yeah that, that really opened my mind because um, the this dance coach she was basically teaching me how to how I should think about how I can make everything in one movement so even the way I walk on stage the way I kind of acknowledge or even bow if I have to to the audience has to kind of fit in with with the character that I'm going to portray when I play my instrument mm, right yeah and and it was something I really really did not think about had never occurred to me yeah, I, I I think this is um quite a good point and probably not a lot of I would say not a lot of musicians would think about that element of performance. And now that you've mentioned it, then you realize that actually it makes so much sense, right? Of course, the moment we step out uh, from the, the backstage area and like or technically past the curtains, we are immediately transforming ourselves into something else, right? We are now part of a performance. And in that performance, of course, we are playing a certain type of music or music of a certain character. And to have that kind of disconnect that 
if you're going to play something that is very, like like I said, somber or cheerful, and then your demeanor as you work on stage or when you face the audience, if it's a complete opposite, if somebody was to do something that disconnects with the music to the audience, maybe the audience wouldn't feel like it's very strange. But certainly, if you were able, if you're able to bring that mood right from the moment you start entering the stage, I think the connection between the audience will be much greater. Yeah, definitely. I I think like I like you mentioned, like the audience might not notice like what is the difference, right? Yeah, but I think subconsciously they do. Mm. They do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely. I think yeah, like I said, subconsciously there will be something about the performance that seems to to capture them in a way that this other one didn't, I guess. Yeah, yeah we should that probably do like yeah. some kind of... It um, should be quite fun to do a, a research or a survey on this, I think. Actually, I think, I think there has been research. I think we just... I think as musicians, we really kind of need to work more with like dance and theatre practitioners, right? Mm. I think that's 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 when I really like I mean it was through a dance coach which I which I where I kind of learned this right so uh yeah that really kind of opened my mind to meaningful collaborations this trend I guess of of where the arts is going isn't it yeah yeah you know in a way yeah smaller scale but many different kind of components to make the idea of the show a bit more holistic I guess in 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 a sense rather than just like purely music yeah in a way in a way it it's it moves away from from i mean my my thought of being a musician right rather than just really not even a musician right just being an instrumentalist and then you and then like suddenly you realize you know you're like really a performance artist mm. right yeah you know you're you're actually performing yeah every I mean, this is not, you're not just doing a recording, right? Mm, definitely. You know, this is a live performance and people are there, right? Yeah. So you kind of have to set the mood, everything from even like, like what I was talking about, the Slide Factory show, even before the audience even walked into the performance venue, mm. right? The collective already captured their interest, really engaged them in a way. Yeah, definitely. And that kind of set, set up the whole whole mood, the whole preface for this this show that they were going to put up. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I think... The, yeah, the, the idea of just having music and thinking that just by doing what we do is enough. I, I, I guess to a certain extent, there are still... Uh, times and opportunities that calls for that. But I think uh, definitely in order to to make what we do have a, a more sort of appeal towards the younger crowds and without going into the genre of like uh, popular music, definitely we have to um, come up with things that are a little bit more cool and more holistic, right? That can engage them in a different way. Because yeah, yes, definitely. I think I think that the the term to use might be to 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 be relevant, right? Mm. Because if you look at as we study history, music, right, as students, you know of how how like music eventually became like like for only for the aristocrats, mm. 
after the like industrial revolution and then all these commoners could suddenly yeah ten concerts right and then there's there's this huge boom of uh, orchestras mm. across the world right and yeah I mean I think uh that 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 is actually quite a while ago and actually that I think we always have to look for a way to kind of be relevant right mm. yeah definitely and I okay I think this idea of like being relevant and doing this sort of very um, unique and to a, to a certain extent, if I may say, a little bit kind of indie sort of productions, right? Where it's, um, it doesn't have that much of uh, perhaps like mainstream appeal or you don't even appeal to maybe the purest of uh, uh, classical music. Uh, do you think that this is not being completely embraced here in Singapore? And that perhaps if we talk about general sort of employment of um, these uh, music students, we usually say two things, right? Which is one, uh, band directing, and two, uh, joining up with a professional organization, which uh, employs you as a musician and pays you a, a, a monthly and a regular uh, fixed wage. And I, I think I mentioned this in, in, in my episode as well, that I think this funneling is just very uh, crippling for music students. Yeah, I mean, for sure. For sure, uh, like, I was I was actually one of these students, right, where, where, where I was taught by my... I actually told by my teachers, right, you either teach or you get an orchestra job, mm. right, if you want to make a living. And I think, you know, I mean, it's it's, it's a little bit um, ironic, right? I mean, we are already, in a way, we are embarking on, an, as music students, we are embarking on an unorthodox career path. Yeah. Right? But then there is this huge huge um draw to to find some sort of normalcy to be to to kind of go towards an orthodox like career progression right mm. and yeah i mean that that like i mean maybe it's because just to get you know like uh something stable mm. i mean not not discounting the fact that of course you know that it will be like stable right like to to actually have a monthly pay yeah for sure but i mean at the end of the day it's it was also like one of the conversations I had with my teacher that when I realized, you know, like I don't really need to to have an orchestra job, right? Because uh, at the end of the day, it's really, are you able to put food on the table, mm. you know? Mm. Are you able to be happy with what you're doing? Yeah. Right? And if you're able to kind of work around in a gig economy where where you can find many different things to do, Yep. and be able to make a living out of it, why not, right? Mm. And that was when I really started to, 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 to think deeper about, about about what I should be doing. Yeah. Right, because actually, like what you were mentioning, like what I was told really early on in my, my music uh, studies, it really robbed me a lot of, of, of a lot of op- opportunities, right? A lot of uh, kind of different kind of, directions a lot of different kind of courses mm. that i would have taken 
yeah. during my education to to kind of learn learn more about how I can I can better navigate this what what I want to do right now mm. right but then again also I, of course I say that that I was robbed but then of course on the other hand if I did not um, put in the practice that I needed to mm. would I be able to get to where I am today right so yeah, yeah it's a really hard hard thing to really say mm, yeah like yeah, it was a very negative effect, right? Correct. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I still do think that that, in general, it in, for music students, it's, it's all it's it's a little bit sad that they are only kind of given like two options, right? Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I I think a big part of say when you were studying, why you had that impression, of needing to um like get employment in an orchestra for you to become, uh, maybe you want to use the term successful or have a good career, is what we see our teachers do as well, isn't it? I think that itself or what was happening and what were the, even if we are not talking about the professionals and uh, the, the guys at SSO, we, we talk about what the, the seniors of the music scene are doing. I think that really has a very important impact on the the younger generations and how we see our own careers. Yeah, I I totally agree, right? Because uh, it was only when I studied in in Netherlands, right, mm. when my teachers, right, I mean, of course, they they had orchestral positions. Right? When I was doing my masters in Rotterdam, uh, my teachers had orchestral positions, but uh, I remember one of them was actually kind of leaving the uh, wanting to leave the orchestra to kind of do his own stuff mm. and to like take on a more permanent teaching position yeah and also actually in my final year one of my teachers uh who's actually about my age right he does not have an orchestra position right he's 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 really a portfolio musician doing all kinds of projects i mean of course he plays in orchestras as well like as a freelancer mm. but i mean it's really him doing all these different kind of uh, projects, yeah, right, that led me to to see that you know there is that there might be a a, a different way yeah. you could go about this. Yeah, there's still some hope out there, right? I would just want to go back to maybe your time at Rotterdam when you first when your teacher first mentioned to you that you had to create a show that was perhaps more holistic or engaging or uh, captivating. And it was not until you saw him in action or the entire NTC in action that it clicked in your mind. Now I understand what you're saying, isn't it? Because right now, like you and I, we are at this position whereby we are also uh, doing our uh, doing teaching and meeting a lot of the, the younger generation of students who might or might not be keen to go onto this sort of... Uh, um, to have this, uh, have a career in music. And like your teacher could have said to you and give you um, unlimited amounts of examples of what uh, captivating or what your recital should be like. But until you see one for yourself, you're never really truly going to understand what he really meant. And it's until uh, we, we can always tell uh, the, the younger sort of um, or the next generation of 
music professionals that oh you know there are a lot of things out there that you can do you could de- do like uh, x y and z but it's until that we are actually doing it ourselves and we let our work uh, show for itself what are the possibilities that they can truly understand what we meant isn't it yeah I definitely I definitely agree with that that sentiment yeah uh, yeah it, and that 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 kind of makes what what we want to do a little bit more exciting isn't it yeah definitely definitely and I mean I'm not uh, by no means uh, we are saying that what we are doing is uh, a very noble act or that we are going to to change the entire landscape in uh, Singapore. But we, to be absolutely honest, we don't know how the group is going to go in, in the future, right? We are, you know, just about a year, I would say, uh, since our formation. We, we haven't even go past one year since our first uh, big show uh, or big production. So, um, and definitely there is this, idea that or there's this intention behind showing uh, the this intention behind showing the the younger yeah this this intention behind showing the younger generation uh, sorry I think you dropped I, I think you dropped out for quite a bit there yeah it's okay uh, the it, it will uh, since it's, it's me speaking anyway so it, it captured everything Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so I was saying that, uh, yeah, it's really kind of um, up to us to to show them the possibilities, and if we want them to do something interesting, if we want them to to embark on this journey of like collaborating with other artists and and stuff like that, or people of uh, in different disciplines that we spearhead uh, this initiative, and hopefully then that will rub off, and for them to see that. There are a lot of possibilities out there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, that's quite a uh, that's quite a big like big. That's quite a big pair of shoes to fill. Yeah. Uh, whatever you're describing, I mean, honestly, I don't, I don't really see myself so, like, as 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 uh, such a, a figurehead, right? Or as a you know like, like a, a mover or or what but like I, I really I think it really boils down to to what I'm interested in doing right? mm. which is really doing many different kind of things a little bit of this a little bit of that really to it makes yeah it just makes everything a little bit more interesting you know mm. like yeah so that yeah yeah so I think with that it's about time for us to wrap up this particular session uh, thank you so much for coming onto the show bro and uh, being so honest and open to share about your life experiences and your opinions and all that kind of stuff. In uh, any case, you want to chat about things, this platform will always be open to you. So don't be a stranger. And with that, we will sign off on this episode of You Play A What. You have been listening to You Play A What, hosted by Vincent Tan. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button so that you'll be notified when a new episode is posted. Rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends if you feel so inclined. The theme music for the podcast is entitled Midnight Affairs and is composed by Algodas Matonis and recorded by Vincent Tan. Thank you so much for listening to You Play or What? Until next time.
Thank you.